This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to episode 10. I have jokingly referred to today's episode as the seasoned versus fresh spec writer cage match. I hope you enjoy listening to my chat with my two good friends, Rick Heiserman, the seasoned one, and Jeffrey Potter, the fresh one. They have great information to share. But before our final season one episode begins, I have an announcement. I am thrilled to share that RCAT has given the green light to continue our podcast with a season two of Detailed with yours truly. As season one wraps up, mark your calendars for episode one of season two on May 13th, 2022. Maybe you have an interesting project with a great story that you would like to chat with me about. Bet you didn't know you could apply to be a guest on Detailed. Check it out at A-R-C-A-T, arcat.com slash podcast slash guest. Thank you for joining us for season one. See you on May 13th with more great project stories. In this podcast, we talk a lot about real challenges in AEC and how you might be able to improve your projects by hearing about the real-life lessons learned of our guests. In my opinion, just my opinion, one of the biggest failures in our industry, regardless of the discipline that you work in, is the lack of education and training for appropriately and efficiently delivering a project according to the contract and without risk. My very unscientific research and observations lead me to believe that 95% of our professionals have inadequate education or training in this particular area. Guessing my guests are going to back me up in that department today. The trial by fire on the job education that we get is often insufficient or just plain downright wrong. Because of this, the problems and inefficiencies that result throughout our projects are endlessly repeated, which drives me insane. The worst part is most AEC professionals don't even realize this. You don't know what you don't know, right? Which leads me to today's guests, two very passionate, experienced, knowledgeable professionals at either end of their careers with a wealth of information to share. My first guest, and this would be the seasoned one, is Mr. Richard Heiserman, Senior Associate, Architect, here come the acronyms, AIA, FCSI, CCCA, at Ankrum Moisson Architects in Portland, Oregon. Rick is a licensed architect with over 40 years. 40 years is a long time, mister, of experience in the construction industry. In addition to providing technical assistance in spec writing, Rick is also a mentor and technical resource to the teams and staff in his office. In addition, Rick is my former coworker, my mentor, a fellow in CSI, and a very good friend. But don't tell him I said that. Also a bit of an antagonist since he loves to give me a hard time, especially about the Dallas Cowboys. My second guest, now this would be the fresh one, is Mr. Jeffrey Potter. And this is a big, long title, Jeffrey. Specification Solutions Product Manager at Dell Tech. I did it. Jeff has just recently moved to Dell Tech. He has six and a half years experience in AEC and was 
previously the spec writer for a large West Coast firm. Jeff is dedicated to continuing specification education across the industry and transforming specs for future generations. I personally met Jeff in 2018, I had to go look that up, when I was asked to come to his office in California to do a presentation on different ways they might create more efficiencies in their documents and their processes. I knew immediately when we met that we would be kindred spirits when it came to improving how we work in this industry. There's lots of misconceptions about spec writers and what it is exactly we do. So in a, in a pretty brief summary, kind of your elevator pitch, what exactly does a spec writer do? In my mind, it's managing information. It's managing the flow of information that, that you receive from the project teams and how it all fits together. That information can dictate different paths that you take in terms of working with, if you have an interiors department, working with interiors or standards or building technology. But it's how do you manage that information and put it into a written language that is easily understood by all parties so that it can be bid and built. And I know that's kind of like a little broad definition, but... You know, spec writing has evolved more than just word processing and choosing brackets and and that sort of thing. It's I think that definition is pretty outdated with the evolution of of technology and the way that teams communicate now. And and so you've got to take all the information that you get and manage it appropriately. Rick, what do you do besides send me not nice Dallas Cowboys memes during the day. That makes up my day. Uh, <laughs> I, I would I would agree with what what uh, Jeffrey said. I, I think putting on my CSI hat and and being as condensed as I can get, drawings define quantity, specifications define quality. So it's the question of we know what the product is, or we know the amount of the product that's defined uh, on the drawings, but the specs define how that product is to be installed and how it can be evaluated if it's installed correctly. As a spec writer, and this is my favorite question to ask everybody, because this is the area where you fix things. As a spec writer, what is your biggest pet peeve? What drives you crazy at work? Can I have two? I suppose. All right. Um, My first pet peeve would have to be when the team has asked me for information and they put it in the context of a question because that stops me in my tracks. The intent is that they want me to do something. They don't know what they want. And so they left it as a question. So I have to stop and say, all right, we need to talk about it either face-to-face or on a phone call or, or back and forth through email or something to come to some sort of resolution to say, what is it that you're really asking me to do? The other pet peeve that I have is that we tend to think we're we're important by putting the preposition at the beginning of the sentence. And what that causes a lot of to be's and shall be's, my mentor years ago finally drilled into my head, put the verb at the beginning of the sentence and get rid of the to be's and the shall be's. And your your sentence is all of a sudden much clearer and much more understandable. But I don't know if we get it from attorneys that tend to want to put a lot of legalese into their language that actually, I say, constipate the sentence or <laughs> what the instructions are trying to say. It's funny because when I'm teaching CDT, I call the Shelby's, the shells, the F-bombs of spec writing. Yeah. It's like there is your first sign that somebody working on that spec doesn't know what they're doing. So how about you, Jeffrey? What drives you crazy at work? You, are you going to say, can I have 10? <laughs> I was going to say, where did I start? There's thousands. <laughs> Probably my biggest one is, and I'm sure we we all get these emails. Hey, can I get a, a metal wall panel? I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, what else you want? You know, like just as a specifier, I have so many questions off that one question. Like, what is the, the thickness? What's the material? What's the finish? How's it being installed? Do you have a basis of design? Do you have perforations? You know, there's so many questions. And I try to drill into everybody that the project manual is 
I use the, the reference as a story. You can't just give me the, the cover of the book, right? You can't just say, hey, I, I want a metal wall panel or I want a roof. You've got to fill in the pages in between the cover and the end. And you've got to provide me as much information as you can up front so that I can get you a, a complete and correct and concise spec for your project. And if you just tell me metal wall panel, it doesn't get me anywhere. It's this mindset of individual item thinking instead of assembly component thinking and, and what makes that assembly uh, and what characteristics of the materials do I need to give to my spec writer so that they can specify it correctly. You probably hit my number one pet peeve. I don't know how many times in my career I have said, I am not a mind reader. And the one thing just for our listeners that Rick Jeffrey and I all have in common is we are or have worked in large firms where we have to work on lots of different projects at once. Spec writers almost never have the luxury of being embedded into one project like the rest of the design team. And I remember once getting that instruction at a former firm, I need a suspended ceiling system. Do you know how many pieces and parts there are that are all going to be customized to your building and your design? And so, amen, my friend, amen, because that's probably my number one. But one of the misconceptions is that we're mind readers, that we just know. And, and there's that lack of understanding and education of what it really takes to put a spec together. So let me ask you guys this, because I'm, I'm famous for straying down a rabbit hole for a second, but just talking about this kind of made it pop in my head. And if I don't do it now, I'll forget in three seconds. This is another big misconception, I think, in the industry, that if you have a spec writer, you can just use some, I call it construction slang. I need a spec for JIP. You know how many different types of JIP board there are? <laughs> you know, um, they throw some construction slang at you. Oftentimes, we're using the technical term for something. So I'm like, you know how many different rabbit holes we can go down? When people are throwing this information at you, Rick, you can go first. How do you find, because there's no way any one of us could ever remember everything there is to know about every product, and it's changing every three seconds anyway. How do you find the information you need? What is it you're really good at when it comes to products? Well, I, I think that the World Wide Web is, has been a great platform to in searching manufacturers' websites to drill down and get the technical information that I need to have to figure out, is that appropriate or is that what I'm looking for to double check that they haven't changed something from maybe I might be familiar with the product, but I need to uh, see if there's something that's different about it now than maybe the last time I looked whenever that might have been. So I, I rely a lot on manufacturers' websites to, to tell me the information I'm, I'm looking for that would fit the need for what I'm trying to do or validify what I'm trying to do. And those those manufacturers' websites are all like just so perfectly typical from one site to another, and it's always super easy to find your information? Yeah, not some of them are and some are not. Some of them, they do a better job at providing that information, and some are, are really challenging to get through. Um, they tend to, again, maybe put a lot of legalese in their technical information. I got to wade through all that stuff to say, I want the nugget of the information, not not a lot of pretty pictures or verbose language that it isn't helping me. So, Jeffrey, what... What makes you good at getting this information? How do you find this information when, you know, they're throwing things at you? Yeah, Google is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? Like I thinking here of, of an example, I had an email months ago come up and it was, hey, what's the difference between closed cell versus open cell joint seal and backer rod? I'm like, I I don't know. Like, I've never been asked that before, right? And full disclosure, I'm not a licensed architect. I have no experience in in the construction industry before I started spec writing. And it's like, huh, well, let me Google it, right? And you read, and within five minutes, you, you know everything you need to know about backer rods. And then you just make your reasonable assumptions and decisions and email back. And so, yeah, Google is a fantastic tool to learn about the different products 
the differences, the characteristics. Manufacturer websites are obviously, I think, the best. But I think, as we all know, some are really good and some of them are like, I'm never going to specify this company because I can never find the information. You know, I think that's something that can obviously be worked on. Manufacturer reps are also great having all their contact information. I've said in the past that designing and constructing a building is more scientific now with all of the energy codes, all the thousands, tens of thousands of different products that specifiers, architects, designers can't know all the products and we cannot be experts in every single product out there or even a few products. So we have to rely on manufacturer reps more than ever now to make sure that we're using their products correctly, make sure that warranties are upheld if we use it in certain conditions, we've got our transitions covered, all of that. And so it's a difficult path to go down sometimes with researching products, but manufacturer reps and if there's great information out there, it makes it easier. I liken buildings to children. Each one is individual and you don't you can't raise all your children the same because they're different people. You can't build all your buildings the same. So what your spec writer is really good at is research. If you give them the right information and then taking that research and moving it into written form. But at the end of the day, if you're not giving them enough detail about your very individual design for this building, you're going to spend a whole lot of time with Rick calling you on the phone, which will be a long phone call. I promise that. <laughs> and asking questions and back and forth that maybe you wouldn't have to spend if you just gave that to your spec writer right up front. So my next question, what are some of the biggest issues that we deal with on day-to-day with our specifications? And what can you tell the design professionals that we all have to work with that will help them work with us more efficiently? You know, I don't think most design professionals realize that everything they give us, we're completely rewriting. They send us two paragraphs that are written so far off the beaten path of how they need to be in a spec that we have to completely rewrite it. What are some of the biggest issues in specs today that you could teach them something right now, teach them something so they don't do it anymore and they quit giving me gray hair? Why don't you start on this one, Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I think really drilling in the importance that the specifications are 50% of the contract documents and you can't ignore them. I think if you can make that understood across all parties, then I think the projects are much better for it. You know, every firm and their spec writers operate differently. You know, they all have some commonalities. And I think there's this notion that, oh, we've got a spec writer, like they'll take care of everything. I don't have to read them. I don't have to pick brackets i don't have to you know look at products like there's basis of designs already in the master specs like we're set and that's not a good solution to have uh when you're not a spec writer having the understanding that oh i i need to go in and i actually need to read the spec because if i interpret something different than the way the spec writer interprets it then that's probably going to be a conflict and a change order down the road or, or maybe a pre-bid RFI or something that is not going to be good that's going to eat up time. But I think if we can just drill in the notion that, hey, you've got to read these, you've got to pay attention to them, you can't rely solely on your spec writer. They're not looking at the drawings. They're not immersed in your project eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, five days a week. They've got 10, 20, 30 other projects that they're working on. Uh, so you need to be able to provide them with all the information so that they can go through and and accurately write the spec or edit the spec that meets your project requirements. Rick, what do you think some of our biggest issues are? Well, I think that we tend to the the, the team members, and I'm and I say team members, I'm, I'm t- talking about the consultants in addition to the maybe the architectural team members. We tend to. I think live and work in silos where we're dealing with the tasks that directly involve our specific trade or or uh, discipline, so to speak. The issue of communication is what I'm trying to get to, but the but the point that I'm getting at is that because we are in silos and and we're we're spending the bulk of of our effort and our time with the drawings, 
in that silo, and it may interrelate with other uh, disciplines of the project. But when it comes to specifications, it's, I think it, that interrelationship is even stronger than in the drawings. And I'll use the example of the landscape architect that will, they've defined what their landscape material needs to be, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking about landscape material on the building. They've defined what it is and how it needs to go and what it needs to look like and what the plant material is going to be and all that kind of stuff. And they're just saying it's going to go on this uh, waterproof membrane, and that's the architect's problem. What I've had difficulty with is for the landscape architect to say, okay, the owner of the project wants a wraparound warranty, for example, on the waterproof membrane. In order for them to get that, the products that you, the, the landscape architect, are defining or, or deciding are going to go in this project need to be approved by the waterproof manufacturer to get that wraparound warranty because they're the ones that are going to be issuing it. And it's like kind of like, oh, I wasn't aware that what I'm doing is going to be affecting somebody else. And that, I think, is one of the challenges that I see, that this communication needs to be, it, 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 you have to get out of your, your silos, so to speak, and figure out what is my stuff going to be doing with somebody else's stuff and how do they relate and, and are they complementary rather than contradictory to each other? You know, obviously I've both, I've worked mainly in architecture in my career, but I've also worked in MEP engineering and now in building science, which I've mentioned before, drives me insane, that lack of coordination in that particular area. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think what leads to that at a more base level is a lack of understanding of how contract documents are supposed to work in the first place. And I'll give you my favorite super simple example but I have an actual multi-page checklist I created for this, but access panels. Okay. Basic example. That is the architect's responsibility to specify. Yet I would find access panel specifications buried in the MEP specs. And I saw this often among multiple disciplines throughout my career. And I called it CYA language. They totally left me out. I don't know how many times I've seen a change order because of access panels. Stupidest thing. But I've got multiple pages of those kinds of stupidest things because at the end of the day, I hate to say it, please don't burn me at the stake, but at the end of the day, oftentimes it's the architect not doing their job. Where does the pipe end for the building and start for the site? There's coordination that has to happen here with multiple people kind of touching the same thing. And those transitions are so important. But if you don't understand how contract documents at a base level are supposed to work in the first place, it's very common for consultants and engineers to throw language in thinking they're covering themselves instead of maybe picking up the phone and calling their architect client and saying, these are the access panels I need. Would you please put them in your section? And here's the specifics of those because I need this special heat resistant access panel or whatever. And make sure it gets covered because base rule for contract documents say it once, say it in the right place. So um, there's a couple of, I think, are a little bit more fun. You may not think it's more fun questions, but they're fun for me. Looking back on your career, in Jeffrey's case so far, tell me about one thing you just totally screwed up and what you changed about the way you work specifically so that it didn't happen again. Yeah, got a good example. A hundred thousand dollar example. Ouch. Yeah, yeah. So I was working on a project at elementary school and it had this nice vertical folding like garage door. Very expensive, very nice. And so I had gotten the basis of design from the from the design team and had specified it, but I also left in two other manufacturers that made roll-up doors and typical garage doors. They didn't make a vertical folding door. Well, when it came time to bid, the winning bidder actually bid a door from one of the other manufacturers. And so during construction, it came out that, yeah, we can't use this door that we bid because it's not going to fit the design. You're going to have to change a whole bunch of the design. And if you want the door that is the basis of design, it's going to cost you. And so long story short, about $100,000 later, uh, learn that just because manufacturers are listed 
doesn't necessarily mean that they all make the same products or equal or comparable products. And if you're specifying something that's different than what's in your firm's master, you got to verify the other manufacturers. <laughs> Otherwise, don't list them. <laughs> so from that point on, it was verifying other manufacturers or if I could get away with just listing one manufacturer in that one product, then I did that just to, <laughs> just to be safe. But uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was an eye-opener for me. And that's a beautiful example, too, because we've all seen it a million times. Just throw in a couple manufacturers that make those kind of doors, too, and nobody checks to see if they have a product you can use. Um, and it is. Yep. It's a painful lesson to learn. And, and another thing to point out, if you're working, if you're lucky enough to have a spec writer in your firm, the amount of time it takes to go do these things that you never see them do. And... um there's there's so many bases we cover, and it'd be nice to, I, I think, just by the lack of spec writers, our respect is elevating. But, you know, it'd be nice for people to better understand the kinds of things we have to deal with so we don't make a $100,000 mistake. Okay, so Rick, I want to know, because you're a person I know that really knows a lot of stuff, so I have to know, what did you totally screw up and how'd you fix it? <laughs> well, I'll give you one anyway. Um uh, years ago, I was working on a project where it was a negotiated project. The contractor was on board early. We had an owner that I heard more times than I want to count. We're over budget. We've got to get the project down. You guys got to figure some way of making this thing work. And and we had a good relationship with the contractor to try to solve, come up with solutions. One of them was having to do with the windows. And the contractor, as uh, we were moving along, found a, an alternate manufacturer that was able to save a quarter of a million dollars, which should have been a red flag right from the beginning. Um, I've always told my teams, if there's money to be saved, there's usually risk involved. The question is, who's carrying the risk? And the risk needs to be with the, with the person with the most benefit. But anyway, we, we went ahead with this, pursuing this this alternate window manufacturer. And one of the things that I've learned over the years, you generally manufacturers will have the salespeople and they'll have the technical people. The salespeople's job is to sell product and they're going to sell product no matter what. And this particular manufacturer's rep said, yeah, my product or our product can meet the, the specification requirement, performance requirements you've got noted. We can make it work. And we went so far as to look at their uh, facility and we discussed the idea of performance requirements. What I feel that I messed up on was give me the test data and let me see the test data actually being performed, which I didn't do. Um, unfortunately, the bulk of these windows failed. The bulk of these windows had to be replaced. And it's my understanding that particular manufacturer has since gone out of business. What I learned out of that process, and I think that I heard it from the firm, Sharice, that you work for, is that from the threshold, always consider every window is going to leak and prove to me that it doesn't leak. So what I've learned out of that is I don't want the pretty pictures necessarily, but what I do want is the technical information that shows your product can meet the performance requirements so defined by the environment that the building is being proposed at. That sounds like advice that would come out of my office too. Yeah. Luckily, I'm the host, so I don't have to own up to any big mistakes I made. Although I will tell you that I used to think I was cute. And I would, when I was doing my draft specs with my teams, I would throw secret things in it to see if they were actually reading their specs. And one particular time, it was, it was the infamous donut spec the perforated um, pastry materials or something like that, per perforated pastry units. So the only mistake I'm going to own up to is I might have actually put that project out on the street for bids with the perforated pastry units in the spec because I forgot to take it back out. <laughs> Contractor totally caught it, but guess what? My team never did. So reading your specs is important. That's my lesson for, for that particular question, and I won't own any other huge mistakes. So I have my own set of answers to this one, but technically, 
which portions of the building do you find the most difficult to specify? Definitely the envelope. You know, anything that deals with the wall or the roof can always be complicated, especially if you have multiple cladding options or if you've got like a vegetative roof. And then finishes for me are, they're not too, they're not difficult to specify, but it's it's always tough for me to coordinate because trying to get that information from the design team was always like pulling teeth. Like, and I think like the thought of like, oh, it's on the finish schedule. Like it's, it's fine. Yeah. But the finish schedule is not a specification. Like I, I need to know what type of carpet you have or just general flooring material. Um, you know, I, my favorite is paint like you don't think paint is that hard to specify like paint can be complicated right like there's multiple different products out there for kind of the same substrate the way that my old firm's painting master was set up you know we had like gypsum board and we had like five different products for gypsum board but we had one paragraph for flat you know one for eggshell one for gloss and we we did that through through it all and hardly anybody went out and actually looked at that spec and said, oh yeah, I only want semi-gloss on my chip and and my ferrous metals. I only want uh, flat and then cement plaster. I want elastomeric versus versus an acrylic. And so it's, for me, it, it would kind of those items right there that mainly coordination and trying to get the information can be difficult with any item, but uh, getting that information was always difficult for me. How about you, Rick? I know what my number one is. How about you? Kind of following up with what Jeffrey said is where products tend to come together, we tend to think of specific products or specific systems by themselves, but oftentimes they interrelate. And I'll I'll use like, for example, below grade waterproofing. We know what we want. We know what it needs to perform based upon the conditions that we're designing for, but that underground waterproofing oftentimes comes involved with flashing or comes involved with the uh, weather barrier up above. And so that uh, interconnection between various systems or products, are they compatible? Are they not compatible? And what is even more challenging with this is when you get further into like bidding, for example, and and there's uh, another product that wants to come because it's less expensive, wants to be introduced into the project. Now, has a team or the specifier researched the fact that this new product, is it compatible with what's already there? For example, things like asphalt-based products tend to want to eat butyl-type products. And so if they're trying to come together and you have an incompatibility, you're going to have a failure. And the question is, have you kind of connected all the dots, so to speak, of all the pieces that are coming together, that they're going to play well together and they're they're going to serve the purpose that they were intended to to uh, be both manufactured and designed for that application? That, that's such a great point. And when they, I mean, transitions are so key or, or whole systems. Like my, the one that I, if I never had to touch it again, I'd probably be okay, would be green roofs. Because not only do you have to worry about the t- transitions, but you've got multiple disciplines involved in designing a green roof. And they are oftentimes not talking to each other. Like you might you might have your landscape architect in there giving you some other things, but they're not as well-versed as the other products going on in that green roof. So maybe they're not giving you things that are actually going to work with something else you're doing. And I, I just, I find them to be, you know, that in the enclosure, obviously, I work for a building enclosure consultant now. And it was such a lovely thing when I was on the architecture side to just hand that piece off to the enclosure consultant and um, let them do their thing and make sure it was all right. Well, now that I'm on that side of the fence, I, I feel like I'm relearning my career all over again. But the, the, some of these pieces and parts that are either coming from multiple disciplines or transitioning one from the other, I think are our biggest pain points when we get to construction and change orders as well. Are there particular products 
that you feel regularly end up giving you issues and problems during construction if they're not specified correctly? So I'll just throw a random one out there like sealants. How about you, Jeffrey? Do you have any that come to mind easily that you are more uptight about specifying than others? Yeah, glazing. (laughs) (laughs) Glazing is is a big one, right? Like I can think of a project where there was the potential I don't know if it got accepted or not, but it was a $200,000 change order because the glazing wasn't, and I wasn't the specifier. I'll, I'll throw that out there. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> this wasn't my doing, but the glazing wasn't specified correctly. It was different than what was indicated on the drawings and what was specified. I don't think met the energy code. So out in California, we've got some of the nation's highest energy code requirements and the glazing obviously has to be part of that and meet certain criteria and if it's not specified correctly or if the glazing that you select doesn't meet the overall uh, u factor u value of the assembly oh man that that can be very expensive and that's something that i just like as soon as you know i get the opportunity to it's like what's your glazing like, what are you doing trying to do here? And out in California, pretty much everything that we do on commercial buildings is insulated glass units. So it's low E coating on surface two or three. You know, what do you want to go with? And sometimes teams will, will pick a, a product and it will get specified. And then they'll want to get cute and they'll want to add some type of vinyl film to the IGU um, or pattern or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, did you know that just voided your, your warranty? Like, if you wanted a pattern, you should have done like a ceramic frit. So now what are we going to do type of thing? So glazing is is just one of those things that I try nail down because it can go south fast and it could be very expensive. <laughs> very. I would not want to mess up the glazing. What about you, Rick? Are there particular products that make you extra uptight when you're specifying that you really have to make sure that you work with the teams to get those just right, or it's going to cost somebody a a lot of money or a lot of heartache. Yeah, I would have to say glazing is probably right up there as well. And, and maybe what I might add to what Jeff said is that, is that the insulated glazing unit tends to be in, well, it is in division eight, but it's that insulated unit is incorporated into the storefront or the curtain wall or the vinyl windows or whatever it may be. So it, while it has a performance requirement that we define in Division 8, when you now put it into a framed assembly, it's going to have a different overall performance value. And, and the codes are now getting more uh, specific in terms of we don't necessarily care what the individual glazing performance is, but we do care now what the assembled U value or the, the assembled shading coefficient is going to be, and all of a sudden that changes. And that then often involves the window manufacturer to say, this is the type of glaze unit we want to put in your product. We need an overall performance now for your product with that particular glaze unit. Also with that, that we're starting to see more and more um, the requirement for sound transmission. And when you now use the glazing component, which is like with energy, it's the weakest link on your building in terms of sound transmission. When you put that sound transmission requirement on the project or in the glazing system, and again, then into the assembly, it will have its performance from sound standpoint. We did a project in the uh, the LA area a few years back where we had specific sound requirements that were were required, and what ended up happening was it required a, a laminated glazed unit on the uh, the inner pane and a standard unit on the on the outer pane, and what that ended up doing there were a number of different ways the glass had been treated. It ended up with visual distortion to the point where the owner, it was not acceptable to the owner. So once they saw it, they said, this isn't going to work. We have to tear it out. And it was about a $100,000 hit to the project that 
the distortion on the glazing was so unacceptable to the owner that that then became a huge problem. We're finding that windows are such a, a big element. They have to do so many different things these days that you got to be careful that we hit them right and we don't have a problem. Okay, so we'll switch to something a little lighter for a minute. What technology or tools or processes do you use and maybe maybe are unique to you or or something that you feel really makes not only your job easier or more efficient but also helps you really coordinate with your team among your team both in-house and consultants and keep everybody on the same page i'll start with you jeff specification software is number one on my list you know, there, there's a couple different options out there, but now that I work for one, you know, eSpecs is a fantastic tool for specifiers when processing specifications. I'm all about efficiency, uh, accuracy, and doing specifications in Word format. It doesn't make any sense anymore for a spec writer. You know, even if you've got macros to help with, yeah. My old firm had clients that had their own master specs. Um, we had to do them in Word-based, and it was so much slower. Track changes, you know, we didn't have macros for headers and footers, so having to do it all manually, it, it's a pain. The formatting, if it's off, is trying to fix it is a pain. Specification software is by far the, the best. And then in terms of just a specifier individually on kind of managing tasks, I use OneNote every day to manage my tasks, take notes on projects. You can take snapshots, you can get in there, get away from pen and paper. Pre-pandemic, I used a lot of paper. And then when I started working at home, 100% all on the computer, I got rid of paper. And that changed a lot. And so if you can find any program that makes you more efficient, makes you more accurate, that's the way to go. So Rick, what are... What are... <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh asking you this question. What what tools do you use that help you really gel well with your teams and keep everybody on the same page that you feel are the most beneficial to how you do your job and things not falling through the cracks? Well, I, I've been around long enough and have enough gray hairs. I'll, I'll, I'll start maybe giving a little perspective. When I first started in this industry, the I didn't work on it, but but the founder of the firm, um, I found one of seven specs that were written on one of the first projects that they had created. There were seven specs because that's as far as the typewriter could go through carbon paper and still reveal something on that seventh document. <laughs> so you can imagine the labor intensive if there was a mistake in the typing, uh, what that would have done to just the labor of, of produce, producing that particular spec book, which was absolutely amazing to me. But moving into the 21st century and, and um, you know, the issue of, of electronics that uh, almost exclusively the, these days that we work in, I think the thing that has a benefit that I have been, we have been using as a firm is, is the Bluebeam session. And the reason for that is that the edits Everybody that can be invited on the team can be invited to the session, and you can then put marks in. You can see what other people have said, and that is it's like one uh, silo or one collector point that I can look at. And I also have the ability then with the Bluebeam session to be able to define I've accepted it or I've, I've the information that's on there. I've addressed that in that session or that um, uh, phase of the project so that I know that I've done it. And and the challenge that I got that I've got right now is that uh, I still have people that want to email me or phone call me or send me a smoke signal or whatever that says, hey, you need to make this change. And so the question is of the 50 or 60 emails I get a day, you know, have I done those things? And at least in the when it, when the comments are in the Bluebeam session, I'm able to uh, see what the comments are, and I know whether I picked them up or not. And it's a record, by the way, of what has been uh, instructed to me or other members of the team that need to be uh, addressed on that on that particular project. 
One of the um, kind of side benefits I've found about using Bluebeam Session with my teams, Rick and I also both use Speclink, that I didn't really see when I first started using this process, but has been this really lovely thing, is I personally invite every member of the team to the session, even if they are not contributing or marking up the spec or, or sharing information with me. And so the two side benefits I didn't anticipate in the beginning from doing it that way is the younger staff members are popping into the spec as they're designing, just kind of seeing what the senior person who's marking it up is putting in there. And the drafters or the young designers that are actually doing the drawings, who normally wouldn't be involved in a spec, are actually popping into my specs and going, wait, what is Sharice calling this in a spec? Because we're using some crazy other term that when the, you know, drawings and specs, one set of information goes on the drawings, another one in the specs. So they look at that term on their drawings, they go look in the spec and they can't find it because we're not using the same language. Drawings are supposed to match the specs. So now the drafters are looking in the specs for the projects they're designing, and we're getting closer together on the language that we're using. So it's easier for the contractor to find things, which translates to less change orders. And our younger staff is learning far earlier in their careers about what a spec really is, what belongs there, where you put things, how you're allowed to say things, who you can and can't give instructions to. And that was something that was just, I just totally didn't see that one coming when I started. And so now everybody comes in and I tell them during training, don't send me an email. Unless it's like two minutes before the deadline, don't send me an email. Go into the session and put it there so at the end of the day, everybody sees the same thing. Um, consultants, I'm curious about this one with both of you because over the course of my career and because I've had the benefit of working in on the consulting side, where I would sit there and the architect would not share the information I needed for me to do a good job on the consulting side on my specs for them. What it, what are your processes for being consistent with your consultants without asking for unrealistic things? Well, we, we, we've been talking over the broad term of communication, and I think it ultimately comes down to they need to know that their information is not unique to them necessarily, but their information is intertwined with the information that we're dealing with. And I think one of the more challenging ones would be um, structural engineers that tend to, they know the structural information that they need to have. And whether they're writing that section or they're editing our section, there oftentimes are maybe a lot of things that are relevant to us that the structural engineer may not have even conceived about. And I think that communication, they, they have to ultimately blend together to be able to uh, have a complete document. Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I worked on so many projects and we had so many different consultants that for me it was, here's a, here's a template to match our format and here's a little guideline that says if you're going to reference access panels or painting here's the section or some easy do and don'ts basically and it started to grab on towards the end but it's you know rick brought up a good point uh, especially with structural even civil there are architectural components like finishes that they probably don't care about right so one of them i can I can think of right off the bat is the FF and the FL values of floor flatness for concrete. As an architect, we have much higher standards, at least we did, for polished concrete than what the structural engineer had in their spec. And so lots of times those conflicted because we had our own concrete finishing spec and then the structural engineer's cast in place spec had something completely different. And teams at least in my experience, teams never really reviewed the consultant specs. Very few did. And these items were really never caught. And, you know, they made it out and there was RFIs and there's change orders. You know, at my firm, 90% of the change orders were MEP related. And that, I'm sure, was a good portion of not reading the specs to make sure that it aligned with the design. And 
you go through consultant specs, I mean, I've, I've done it. Uh, I've had to go through and, and mark up like, hey, you've got IBC listed. We're under the CBC. Or you've got, it was an NFPA 70 listed for the electrical code, but we're under the California electrical code or some other standards that are not even applicable in California. And the team should do that. But consultants can only do what they're given. And so it's a failure by the architect to not provide the information to the consultant so that they can do their job correctly and make sure all the information is accurate. Yeah, there's, you know, there's some things like, oh, IBC versus CBC that, that should be, you know, easily caught. But a lot of times architects just don't provide the full picture to the consultants. And so how can we expect a level of perfection when they don't have all the information themselves. I think that one thing we could consider doing if we want to maybe step out of our box and take it a step further is a couple of things. We can meet with our consultants strictly to talk about the contract documents early on. Another thing we could do, I actually had not the one I used to work for because I did it as part of working there, but another MEP firm here in Portland actually hired me to come to their firm for 10 weeks and teach them the entire CDT, Contract Document Technology Project Delivery Program. And they probably had 25 people in their class, but for the last probably five years now, they have staff in every, I teach CDT twice a year, staff in every round of my CDT, CDT class because they found the value in getting that education. And understanding how we're all supposed to play in this pool together and who's supposed to say what. Half the information I found in consultant specs are things that didn't even need to be there. They should be covered by division one, but we're not coordinating that. And it's time consuming to do that on a project by project basis. So why not just teach them the thing nobody's teaching them? It's not because they're stupid. It's because nobody has ever had this conversation with them and they sure as heck didn't have it in school. So, you know, I think there are other ways that we can just make every project because Rick knows how much I love to do things twice, like never. If I can help it, I hate making the same mistakes over and over again just because we can't take that time to get everybody on the same page. Okay, so we have been talking a lot about project um, project delivery or, or specifications, um, but we're all from big firms. What advice would you give a smaller firm to efficiently address knowledge and um, implementing specifications in a smaller firm where maybe they don't have a spec writer or a spec team or or the same resources that a, that a big firm would have? I think having a good process set up, first off, everyone should get their CDT so that they're fully exposed and, and know how everything aligns, but they need a firm process. You know, who controls the masters, who controls the edits, who follows through on the edits. You know, you definitely don't want a young designer being able to make master changes or um, necessarily make changes within the spec for a project. So having a good process set up of what everybody's role is within when it comes to specs uh, would be key. And then using some type of software, probably a great combination is Bluebeam Session with uh, some type of specification software to make things easy, collaborative. But yeah, just having that defined process, I think can help a small firm go a long way. What would you advise for a smaller firm, Rick? Yeah, I would, uh, I mean, it, that's really what Jeff said is not unusual to a large firm, but but having a master that is current and and that's really challenging for a small firm because you have limited resources generally to, to keep that up. And it's at, at times may not be uh, billable or profitable to do that, but it, it, it's critical to do it. I think the other thing too is that you need to have contacts in the industry, particularly with manufacturers reps that you can go to to get information to verify it because you may not necessarily have, you oftentimes will not have somebody that is, uh, may have that knowledge off the top of their head. And so you're having to rely on people in the industry to uh, validify what it is that you need to um, be writing. 
Another option, I think, is also you can consider hiring an independent spec writer um, to manage that for you. And I think you could also consider maybe paying an experienced spec writer to come in your office, show them what you're doing, and give you some advice on how to make that better um, would be another couple of options, I think, for a small firm. So last question. If you were king of the world and could make all of the rules, what would be the very first rule of law thing that you would change in the industry to make things go better? You just get one today. Rick? Uh, Jeff kind of hit on it earlier, and I would have to say that when somebody asks a spec writer to do something, that they need to think through what they're asking. And that is, and Jeff used the comment, I want an overhead door. Um, in order for us to do our job, we have to have more information in it than just, you know, I, I use the example, I want, I want a car. Well, does it need to have wheels? Does it have, have a steering wheel? Does it need to have electric motor or gasoline motor? Uh, does it need to have leather seats? I mean, ultimately, they want, they know what they want, but in their naiveness, I guess, in asking the question, I want this, they haven't thought through, okay, I can get you that to begin with, but you need to tell me more of the story to give you exactly what you're asking for. And so if I were king of the world, I would say, don't just say, I want in a broad term something, but think through what it is that needs to go into what you're asking for originally so that I can deliver for you ultimately what you want to have. And there isn't a conflict or isn't some sort of change during construction that says you didn't provide this information or it was incorrect information. Or it's more efficient. Right. Than going back and forth 30 times asking 30 questions. Right. How about you, Jeff? Yeah, I I think the one rule I would do would be if you are in architecture school in order for you to graduate or maybe even in order for you to get licensed as an architect, you have to take the CDT and you have to pass it. <laughs> I, I think that would go a long way in the industry, especially with with students getting them exposed earlier is much better than five, 10 years in their career, which it seems like most people don't hear about specs and, until they're five, 10 years in. So getting them early exposure to the CDT can help them set up not just with specs, but everything else that the CDT offers, project delivery methods, all the, you know, the division zero zero, the division zero ones, it can help set a great baseline for a better future. Uh, you know that I think that's a game changer. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough. Well, that was our final episode of season one. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. I am super excited to announce that RCAT is moving forward with season two, and I will continue to be your host. Season two will premiere on May 13th, 2022, so mark your calendars, and in the meantime, you can catch up on any season one episode that you may have missed. I'll admit, I was honored, but also surprised, when I was approached by RCAT and Gable Media to host this podcast. I mean, really, I'm a spec writer, not a broadcast personality, but I guess some might say I'm a bit of a character, so maybe that was it. If I'm being honest, I didn't know if this would be my thing. Go figure. I've had a blast navigating this new adventure, meeting really cool people, making new friends, and learning something new every time I turn on the microphone. My hope is that it has been the same experience for you. I think this whole team was on the same page from the very beginning with what we wanted to accomplish with this podcast. Authentic conversations with real people, talking about project challenges and successes in the AEC industry. I can't wait for the next batch of stories. Maybe you have an interesting project with a great story that you would like to share. I bet you didn't know you could apply to be a guest on Detailed. Check it out at arcatrcat.com slash podcast slash guest. And to RCAT, thank you so much for including me on this journey. See y'all on May 13th. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.